Hey, Crypt Keepers, I want to tell you about our exciting new affiliation with Parabox. Parabox is a t-shirt subscription box with a twist. Each month, you will receive a new paranormal soft style tee and info card about that month's theme. The shirt and card will contain clues to finding a hidden password for use on their website. You'll also find clues to next month's theme. Correct entries get entered in a raffle for free gear. The shirts are unique. They're pretty dope with designs about all your favorite paranormal stuff like Black Eyed Kids, Bigfoot, Nazca Lines, and a really cool Battle of Los Angeles tee. That's one I'm hoping I will get here sometime soon. The designs are silk screened onto a soft style tee that's super comfortable. From the moment you open your pair box, you'll be so engrossed by the t-shirt, you'll forget there's a puzzle built into it. That's right, each shirt contains a secret password. It can be in the form of codes, ciphers, riddles, numbers, images, or other hidden gems. Have fun exploring the design and putting the pieces together to figure out where to go next. Get your exclusive link in the show notes, and we get a little kickback when you sign up for the box, so you can support the show while getting cool swag with mysteries in the process. There were many with him, and they laughed as you laugh now. <laughs> but then it came from the shadows, and their laughter was drowned in blood. What came out of the shadows? I cannot say the word. You cannot bargain with it. You cannot reason with it because it is not a human being. It is a demon sent straight from hell. You shut your face, old man! I'm Good evening, Crypt Keepers, and welcome to another episode of Cryptique. Ryan and I ask that you subscribe, but also share the podcast on social media. And you've been doing that, and that's been such a huge help to us. We have almost doubled our listeners since you guys have started sharing, so thank you. Don't forget to check out the Parabox Mystery t-shirt link in the show notes. I just got my Chupacabras shirt, so that's cool. I'm joined, as always, by a man who karate chops his grilled cheese sandwiches in half. Ryan, what's up? You gotta have a sharp cut. <laughs> that's that's the key to a grilled cheese sandwich. You gotta have a sharp cut. You gotta master you that. Practice on some board first. Bruce Lee had his one-inch punch. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm not so sure about that one one-inch punch, but he was an amazing person, first and foremost, an amazing martial artist. But I just don't see a 120-pound dude just one-inch punching and, like, killing somebody. But that's neither here nor there. All right. Well, your voice is a little gravelly, but that's for the lady folks out there. So, anyway, let's tell them what we're talking about tonight. Uh, tonight we are talking about ninja. Ninja or ninjas? I think... Is the plural of ninja ninja? I think so. Well, a ninja or shinobi, for those of you who either know that word or have played the game, was a covert agent or mercenary in feudal Japan. The functions of a ninja included espionage, deception, and surprise attacks. 
Their covert methods of waging irregular warfare were deemed dishonorable and beneath the honor of the samurai. Shinobi were especially trained spies and mercenaries appearing in the 15th century, but may have existed as early as the 12th. In the unrest of the Sengoku period, mercenaries and spies for hire became active in the Iga province and the areas around the village of Koga, and it is from these areas that much of the knowledge regarding ninja is drawn. Following the unification of Japan under the Tokugawa shogunate in the 17th century, the ninja faded into obscurity. Several shinobi manuals, often based on Chinese military philosophy, were written in the 17th and 18th century. By 1868, shinobi had become a topic of popular imagination and mystery in Japan. Ninja figured prominently in legend and folklore where they were associated with legendary abilities such as invisibility, walking on water, and control over natural elements. Their perception in pop culture is based more on legends and folklore than on the ninja in the Sengoku period, so the, the actual people. Right. Ninja is the onyomi reading of the two kanji. In the native kanyomi reading, it was pronounced shinobi. The word shinobi appears in the written record as far back as the late 8th century in poems. Shinobi means to steal away or to hide, hence its association with stealth and invisibility. Historically, the word ninja was not in common use, and a variety of regional terms evolved to describe what would later be dubbed ninja. Along with shinobi, some examples include manomi, or one who sees. In historical documents, shinobi is almost always used. In the modern era, kunoichi, hopefully pronouncing that correctly, means female ninja. In the West, the word ninja became more prevalent than shinobi in the post-World War II culture, possibly because it was more comfortable for Western speakers. Which I think is kind of funny, because it's like, how many people are like, I can't say shinobi, it's too hard, we got to think of something else, how about ninja? <laughs> yeah, maybe it's just more fun. Uh, yeah, it sounds, sounds cool. Uh, let's go with the history. Despite many popular folk tales, historical accounts of the ninja are scarce. Historian Stephen Turnbull asserts that the ninja were mostly recruited from the lower class, and therefore little literary interest was taken in them. The social origin of the ninja is seen as the reason they agreed to operate in secret, trading their service for money without honor and glory. The scarcity of historical accounts is also demonstrated in more epics such as the tale of Hogan and the tale of Heike, which focus mainly on the aristocratic samurai whose deeds were apparently more appealing to the audience. Historian Kiyoshi states that the ninja were trained to be particularly secretive about their actions and existence. So-called ninjutsu techniques aim at ensuring that one's opponent does not know of one's existence and there was special training. So they were seen kind of, I guess, as thugs. Samurai were more like the knights of the era in Japan. And the ninja killed in secret. They started fires. They poisoned people. They spied. They did all the fun stuff. You want to tell us a little bit about the predecessors of the ninja? <laughs> sure. The title ninja has sometimes been attributed retrospectively to the semi-legendary, which is a little bit backhanded semi-legendary, 4th century prince Yamato Takiru. Yamato disguised himself as a charming maiden and assassinated two chiefs of the Kumaso people. 
However, these records take place at a very early stage of Japanese history, and they are unlikely to be connected to the shinobi of later accounts. The first recorded use of espionage was under the employment of Prince Shotoku in the 6th century. The tactics were considered unsavory even in early times. The boy spy, Koha Rumaru, was killed for spying against the insurgent Taira no Masakado. Later, the 14th century war chronicle Taihiki contained many references to shinobi and credited the destruction of a castle by fire to, quote, highly skilled shinobi. Well, let's talk a little bit about the early history. It was not until the 15th century that spies were specially trained for their purpose that we know of. I, I guess there's no, you know, literary accounts of them being specially trained, but you have to think that spies go way back in history way past the 14th or the 1400s so in any case it was around this time that the word shinobi appeared to define and clearly identify ninja as a secretive group of agents evidence can be seen in historical documents which began to refer to stealthy soldiers as shinobi during the sengoku period Later manuals regarding espionage are often grounded in Chinese military strategy, quoting works such as The Art of War by Sun Tzu. The ninja emerged as mercenaries in the 15th century, where they were recruited as spies, raiders, arsonists, and even terrorists. Among the samurai, a sense of ritual and decorum was observed, where one was expected to fight or duel openly. Combined with the unrest of the Sengoku period, these factors created a demand for men willing to commit deeds considered disreputable for conventional warriors. By the Sengoku period, the shinobi had several roles, including spy, scout, surprise attacker, and my favorite, agitator. <laughs> the ninja families were organized into larger guilds, each with their own territories. A system of rank existed. A jonin, or upper person, was the highest rank, representing the group and hiring out mercenaries. This is followed by the chunin, or middle person, assistance to the jonin, because everybody needs assistance. At the bottom was the genin, or lower person, field agents drawn from the lower class and assigned to carry out actual missions. So there was kind of a hierarchy within the ninjas. All right, tell us about the Iga and Koga clans. The plains of Iga nested in secluded mountains gave rise to villages specialized in the training of ninja, which sounds pretty dope. The Iga and Koga clans have come to describe families living in the province of Iga in the region of Koga, named after a village. The remoteness and inaccessibility of the surrounding mountains may have had a role in the ninja's secretive development. Historical documents regarding the ninja's origins in these mountainous regions are considered generally correct. The Chronicle of whew, Go Kagami Foroku writes of the two clans' origins. There was a retainer of the family of Kawai Aki no Kami of Iga, of preeminent skill in shinobi and consequently, for generations, the name of people from Iga became established. Another tradition grew in Koga. A distinction is to be made between the ninja from these areas, and commoners or samurai hired as spies or mercenaries. Unlike their counterparts, the Iga and Koga clans produced professional ninjas, specifically trained for their roles. 
These professional ninjas were actively hired by feudal lords between 1485 and 1581, until Oda Nobunaga invaded Iga province and wiped out the organized clans. Survivors were forced to flee, some to the mountains, but others arrived before Tokugawa Ieyasu, where they were well treated. Some former Iga clan members, including Hattori, would later serve as bodyguards. Following the Battle of Okehazama in 1560, Tokugawa employed a group of 80 Koga ninja led by Tomo. They were asked to raid an outpost of the Imagawa clan. It was written that Koga ninja infiltrated the castle, set fire to its towers, and killed the Castellan along with 200 of the garrison. The Koga ninja are said to have played a role in the later Battle of Sigihara in around 1600, where several hundred Koga assisted soldiers under Tori in defense of Fushimi Castle. After the victory, the Iga acted as guards for the inner compounds of Edo Castle, while the Koga acted as a police force and assisted in guarding the outer gate. In 1614, the initial winter campaign at the siege of Osaka saw the ninja in use once again. Ten recruited shinobi from the Iga region were sent into Osaka Castle in an effort to foster antagonism between enemy commanders. During the late summer campaign, these hired ninja fought alongside regular troops at the Battle of Tenoji. Let's talk about the Shimabara Rebellion. A final but detailed record of ninja employed in open warfare occurred during the Shimabara Rebellion. The Koga ninja were recruited by Shogun Tokugawa Lamitsu against Christian rebels led by Amakusu Shiro who made a final stand at Hara Castle probably Hara Castle, in Hizen province. A diary kept by a member of the Matsudara clan relates, quote, Men from Koga who concealed their appearance would steal up to the castle every night and go inside as they pleased. The ruins of Hara Castle. Suspecting that the castle's supplies might be running low, the siege commander ordered a raid on the castle's provisions. Here, the Koga captured bags of enemy provisions and infiltrated the castle by night, obtaining secret passwords. Days later, Nobutsuna ordered an intelligence gathering mission to determine the castle's supplies. Several Koga ninja, some apparently descended from those involved in the 1562 assault on an Imagawa clan castle, volunteered despite being warned that chances of survival were slim. A volley of shots was fired into the sky, causing the defenders to extinguish the castle lights in preparation. Under the cloak of darkness, ninja disguised as defenders infiltrated the castle, capturing a banner of the Christian cross. The Yukai Diary writes, We dispersed spies who were prepared to die inside Hara Castle. Those who went on the reconnaissance force captured an enemy flag. Both Arakawa, Shichirobi, and Mochizuku Yeoman met extreme resistance and suffered from their serious wounds for 40 days. As the siege went on, the extreme shortage of food later reduced the defenders to eating moss and grass. This desperation would mount to futile charges by the rebels, where they were eventually defeated by the shogunate army. The Koga would later take part in conquering the castle. More and more general raids were begun. The Koga Ninja Band, under the direct control of Matsudara Nobotsuna, captured the castle. With the fall of Hara Castle, 
The Shimibara Rebellion came to an end, and Christianity in Japan was forced underground. These written accounts are the last mention of ninja in war. But what about the Edo period? After the Shimabara Rebellion, there were almost no major wars or battles until the Bakumatsu era. To earn a living, ninja had to be employed by the governments of their Han or Domain or change their profession. Many lords still hired ninja not for battle, but as bodyguards or spies. Their duties included spying on other domains, guarding the lord, and fire patrol. A few domains, like Tsu, Hirosaki, and Saga, continued to employ their own ninja, although their precise numbers are unknown. Many former ninjas were employed as security guards by the Tokugawa shogunate, though the role of espionage was transferred to newly created organizations like the Onmitsu and the Oniwaban. Others used their ninjutsu knowledge to become doctors, medicine sellers, merchants, martial artists, and fireworks manufacturers. That's a pretty interesting one, actually. Some unemployed ninjas were reduced to banditry, such as Fuma Kataro and Ishikawa Gomen. So, rogue ninjas. Yeah. I kind of wonder if that's where, uh, you know, a lot of this stuff, probably a lot of people listening to this, like, they're familiarity with Japanese culture or like these different time periods might come from like manga or anime. Yeah. And it seems like a lot of anime has this idea of like bandits. Mm -hmm. I, I wonder if a little bit of that is from this. Like, I wonder how widespread this was, you know, the idea that there are ninja out there who are bandits who are looking to rob people because in, most of these shows and comics that I've read, like the bandits that you run into are not just like two bit thieves. Like they're very skilled. Yeah. Just makes me wonder if that's like, uh, you know, one of these weird cultural things that's just persisted. There's definitely been the change in attitude. I, I don't think that most Westerners see ninja as like low level thugs because just like you said they you know they did things that we would expect kind of low level thugs to do but were highly skilled at their craft mm -hmm. so you know that's that's all they practiced that's what they did yeah that's the life of a ninja man all right the ninja were stealth soldiers and mercenaries hired mostly by feudal lords Although they were considered the anti-samurai and were disdained by those belonging to the samurai class, they were necessary for warfare and were even employed by the samurai themselves to carry out operations that were forbidden by Bushido. We see that a lot in the United States as far as, hey, Middle East, we don't really want to come in and fight there. But you guys kind of go along with us a little better than the other side. So we're going to train you and supply you with weapons. And then we're going to like wash our hands of it, right? Like, eh, I nothing to see here. I, I don't know what you're talking about. Those guys, I don't know where they got their tanks. <laughs> you know, like just crazy shit. But let's talk about the codes of Bushido. So Bushido is basically, I, I think it translates directly to warrior's code. The eight codes of Bushido. Rectitude or justice. So I guess being correct or right morally. Mm -hmm. 
Courage, obviously, doing things that you're scared to do, but doing them anyway. Benevolence or mercy, which I've never heard associated with samurai, really, but politeness, which is interesting, that goes a long way. Yeah, it's... Well, I think the politeness thing is... What I've read before is that it's... It's just like a respect thing, primarily, and it kind of goes along with like the benevolence and mercy. It's like showing people that you're dealing with in ordinary, everyday situations that you sympathize with them, you have respect for their feelings, like, you, you know what I mean? Like, you, you care about whatever it is they're going through or whatever you're dealing with together. Like, it's more so than just being proper. Okay. You know I what I mean? You. Like, it's it's meant, I, I think, to be like an expression of, like, in, intent. You know, like, I intend mm-hmm. to help you, to respect you, to do right by you, that kind of thing. Yeah, unfortunately, I have to behead you, but <laughs> that's how things go. So, uh, honesty and sincerity, honor, loyalty, character, and self-control. Mm. Military historian Hanawa writes of the ninja, quote, They traveled in disguise to other territories to judge the situation of the enemy. They would deceive their way into the midst of the enemy to discover gaps and enter enemy castles to set them on fire and carried out assassinations, arriving in secret. So that's kind of a weird little paragraph, I guess, but you have to keep in mind that it has to be translated. So Yeah. So let's talk about some of the things they did. Why don't you start us off with espionage? Yeah, so espionage was the chief role of the ninja with aid... From disguises, the ninja gathered information on enemy terrain and building specifications, as well as obtaining passwords and communiques. They observed hidden things and were taken as being friends. Later in history, the Koga ninja would become regarded as agents of the Tokugawa Bakufu, at a time when the Bakufu used the ninja in an intelligence network to monitor regional lords as well as the imperial court. And I do want to say, I don't know if they if you have this in the notes anywhere but something that i've heard before that i kind of buy about the typical outfits we think of ninja wearing mm-hmm. is um so like we we talked before that one of the original stories that might have been you know kind of the origins of the ninja was the guy dressing up as a maiden uh-huh and most of the accounts that i've read that's what it is you know they're they're not they're disguised as other people they're not dressed in like the black bodysuit with the mask and all that stuff i mean i'm sure they did that stuff mm-hmm. we but will I, talk about that okay so maybe i should just let it go and we'll talk about it later well no i mean you're you're right i guess if you are in battle like boom it's it's on right then yeah where you're black and your face mask and all that but that ain't going to get you into a castle, man. Yeah, generally, they dressed as things that would, you know, get you into places and get people to trust you. If someone shows up on your doorstep and they're wearing an Amazon delivery outfit, you're going to be like, hey, yeah, all right, thanks, blah, 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 blah. But if somebody shows up at your doorstep and they're wearing all black with a mask, you're going to be like, yeah, probably I'd shoot through the fucking door. <laughs> Yeah. 
Yeah, but apparently that's where that came from because it became such a common thing that Ninja would be represented that way. Because they were blending into that one specific circumstance. Yeah, yeah. Now, exactly. I don't know how true that is, but it's something I've read in the past that I could be true. Okay, so this is twofold. Uh, you see ghost hunters wearing all black, right? Mm-hmm. Well, part of it is to look cool. I, I mean, that's just, you know, part of it. And then part of it, the reason it's supposed to be is to not draw attention away from other things that you might see, like a mist in the corner or something like that. So everything kind of fits together. You know, you don't want to be wearing a bunch of bling while you're trying to, you know, capture anomalies on film because there's just too many variables that could pop up from it. But anyway, we'll see. We'll get into that at some point. But let's talk about sabotage. Arson was the primary form of sabotage practiced by the ninja who targeted castles and camps. A 16th century diary written by Abbot Ishun of Kofuku-ji Temple describes an arson attack on a castle by men of the Iga clans. He says, This morning, the sixth day of the 11th month of Tenbun, the Iga Shu entered Kasagi Castle in secret and set fire to a few of the priests' quarters. They also set fire to the outbuildings in various places in the Sanomaru. So they captured the inner and outer walls. In 1558, Yoshikata employed a team of ninja to set fire to Sawyomama Castle. (laughs) 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 Sawyomama. A Chunin captain led a force of 48 ninja into the castle by means of deception. In a technique dubbed the ghost technique, his men stole a lantern bearing the enemy's family crest and proceeded to make replicas with the same crest. Smart. By wielding these lanterns, they were allowed to enter the castle without a fight. Once inside, the ninja set fire to the castle and Yoshitaka's army would later emerge victorious. The mercenary nature of the shinobi is demonstrated in another arson attack soon after the burning of Sawayama Castle. Sawayama Castle. In 1561, commanders acting under Kazawa hired three Iga ninja to assist the conquest of a fortress. Yoshitaka, the same man who had hired the Iga ninja just years earlier, was the fortress holder and target of the attack. Iga clan shinobi were contracted to set fire to this castle. However, the mercenary shinobi were unwilling to take commands. When the fire attack did not begin as scheduled, the Iga men told the commanders, who were not from the region, that they could not possibly understand the tactics of the shinobi. They then threatened to abandon the operation if they were not allowed to act on their own strategy. The fire was eventually set allowing Nagamasa's army to capture the fortress in a chaotic rush. So that's really interesting. I mean, if we look at like ISIS, you know, we funded ISIS, we trained ISIS, we gave them a bunch of shit, and then they're, you know, they did some of the stuff that they were kind of expected to do, and then they're like, now fuck you, we're going to do our own thing. Yeah. And even though they, they just disagreed with the orders, it's still pretty ballsy, you know, to tell like a lord or a commander, general, whatever. Yeah, we're not doing it that way. There's a change of plans. Yeah, especially since these were 
supposed to be the lower ranked ones, right? Exactly. I don't know. It's also kind of a sign of a good commander in in certain circumstances to be willing to take pushback. Yeah. I wonder how often that happens in modern... I mean, if, it seems like that happens in like every military movie, but I feel like the real military would not tolerate that. <laughs> I think like almost every military movie from the last 30 years would end in like at least a dishonorable discharge. Or prison time. Yeah. You, you can't you can't just openly defy an order from a superior if it doesn't I mean obviously like you know your drill sergeant can't be like you know kill private joker and you got to do it it's I like I like that reference though that's good private joker I admire your honesty hell I like you you can come over to my house so (laughs) we will talk about assassinations after a quick break hey my name is ryan and i'm pretty sure i'm joe and we are the hosts of movie hell a podcast all about movies and pop culture We're two buddies who talk about this stuff anyway and wanted to share our own madness with all of you. Yeah, we have these discussions anyway and rant and rave about movies, TV, and pop culture in general, so why not share it? The objective of Movie Howl is to bring you reviews and discussions of flops to avoid, new stuff to see, and hidden gems that might end up being your new favorite. Whether you're looking for that perfect movie for Friday night or wondering if anybody else found Mr. Nobody as unsettling as you did, I'm sure there's something for everyone to enjoy, and if not, let us know and we can always learn and improve. Ah, boy, do we have room to improve. You can listen to Movie How on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, and pretty much anywhere else fine podcasts are curated. Hey, Crypt Keepers, I want to tell you about our affiliation with Parabox. Parabox is a t-shirt subscription box with a twist. Each month, you'll receive a new paranormal soft style tee and info card about that month's theme. The shirt and card will contain clues to finding a hidden password for use on their website. Correct entries get entered in a raffle for free gear. They're pretty dope shirts with designs about all your favorite paranormal stuff like Black Eyed Kids, Bigfoot, Nazca Lines. Uh, My favorite is a cool Battle of Los Angeles tee. The designs are actually silk screened onto a soft style tee, and we all know those are super comfortable. From the moment you open your pair box, you'll be so engrossed by the t-shirt, you'll forget there's a puzzle built into it. Each shirt contains a secret password. It can be in the form of codes, ciphers, riddles, numbers, images, or other hidden gems. Have fun exploring the design and putting the pieces together to figure out where to go next. You can find the link in the show notes and we get a little kickback when you sign up for the box, so we would really appreciate it too. Welcome back, Crypt Keepers. You want to tell us about the assassinations? It's a lot of ass in one word. Ass assassinations. (laughs) 
The best-known cases of assassination attempts involve famous historical figures. Deaths of famous persons have sometimes been attributed to assassination by ninja, but the secretive natures of these scenarios have made them difficult to prove. Assassins were often identified as ninja later, but there is no evidence to prove whether some were specifically trained for the task or simply a hired thug. Okay, so, well, you're a big dude. I'm like an average-sized dude. A little heavy, but, you know, pretty pretty average. So, if I get my ass beat, I'm going to be like, oh, man, you should have seen this guy. He blocked out the sun. He was like 6'5 and 300 pounds, and I, that could be the same thing going on here. You know, like some... yeah drug addict from an opium den or something could have stabbed somebody and then you know later on they're like oh no that was a powerful warlord or whatever it was definitely a trained assassin that did it yeah yeah yeah, you're right the warlord oda nobunaga's notorious reputation led to several attempts on his life in 1571 a koga ninja and sharpshooter by the name of sugatani was hired to assassinate nobunaga Using two long guns, he fired two consecutive shots at Nobunaga, but was unable to inflict mortal injury through his armor. Sugitani managed to escape, but was caught four years later and put to death by torture. That's that's really rough, dude. Like, you know, we, we hear gas chamber, you know, the gallows, whatever. But then, you know, they just, we're going to torture you to death. This is going to be awful. In 1573, Manabe Rokuro, a vassal of Daimyo Hatano Hideharu, attempted to infiltrate Azuchi Castle and assassinate the sleeping Nobunaga. However, this also ended in failure, and Manabe was forced to commit suicide, after which his body was openly displayed in public. According to a document, when Nobunaga was inspecting Ika Province, which his army had devastated, a group of three ninjas shot at him with large caliber firearms. The shots flew wide of Nobunaga, however, and instead killed seven of his surrounding companions. The ninja Tenzo was sent by Nobunaga to assassinate the powerful lord Takeda Shingen, but ultimately failed in his attempts. Hiding in the shadow of a tree, he avoided being seen under the moonlight and later concealed himself in a hole he had prepared beforehand, thus escaping capture. An assassination attempt on Hideyoshi was also thwarted. A ninja named Saizo thrust a spear through the floorboards to kill Hideyoshi, but was unsuccessful. He was smoked out of his hiding place by another ninja working for Hideyoshi, who apparently used a sort of primitive flamethrower. Unfortunately, the veracity of this account has been clouded by later fictional publications depicting Saizo as one of the legendary Sonata Ten Braves. Kenshin, the famous warlord of Ichigo province, was rumored to have been killed by a ninja. The legend credits his death to an assassin who is said to have hidden in Kenshin's lavatory and fatally injured Kenshin by thrusting a blade or spear into his anus, which I have heard the story outside of this several times before. If enough people are telling it, it must be true, but it sounds horrifying. I don't know. Tortured to death doesn't sound so bad anymore. (laughs) Ass-assination. While historical records showed that Kenshin suffered abdominal problems, modern historians have generally attributed his death to stomach cancer, esophageal cancer, or cerebrovascular disease. In battle, the ninja also used to cause confusion amongst the enemy. 
A degree of psychological warfare in the capturing of enemy banners can be seen illustrated in a book composed between the 16th and 17th centuries, which said, Within Hataya Castle there was a glorious shinobi whose skill was renowned, and one night he entered the enemy camp secretly. He took the flag from Naoi Kanetsugu's guard and returned and stood it on a high place on the front gate of the castle, which could also sound a lot better if there wasn't a translation issue. So, you know, that doesn't sound like a a book that would get too much uh, attention if it was written like that. All right. So as far as countermeasures, a variety of countermeasures were taken to prevent the activities of the ninja. Precautions were often taken against assassinations, such as weapons concealed in the lavatory or under a removable floorboard. Buildings were constructed with traps and tripwires attached to alarm bells. Japanese castles were designed to be difficult to navigate, with winding routes leading to the inner compound. I I got a quick question. Say... You know, you grab your favorite magazine, you go into your lavatory, and you sit down to do your business. All of a sudden, the door gets kicked in. What do you have to defend yourself? Like, what would I choose? Yeah, I mean, like, what would you do? Like, this, this, you know, Japanese warlord was dropping a deuce, and then all of a sudden, boom, there's a guy with a spear. Yeah, but the spear went up his butt. Like, he never even knew it was coming. You mean he was, you think he was hiding in the shitter? That was the story I heard, yeah. He was hiding in like the, essentially like the plumbing or the, yeah, like the whole underground where it goes, which is horrifying for everybody. Yeah. So, so, okay. So going back to it, (laughs) I I mean, you, you have nothing, you know, it's like, unless you're one of those guys that just did a long bid and your toothbrush happens to already be sharpened into a shank. You're, you know, what are you going to do? I met a guy one time who talked about having a high point, like that real cheap kind of pistol. Oh, they're great. And, uh, yeah, I've heard that they're actually super reliable. Uh, Yeah. He, he said he had one and it was, you know, too big and heavy to use for most things, but he, he created like a little holder for it under a sink Mm -hmm. in his bathroom. And he was saying like, that's a pretty vulnerable place to be. So. I've got a high point stuck to the bottom of my sink in there. So if I'm ever sitting on the toilet, I can just reach over and grab it. All right. Well, that answers my question. Yeah. So I guess uh, my answer would be high point just based on the recommendations of one guy that I talked to once. I I have a, uh, like a puffer fish hanging in there from a trip when I went to Florida. I guess I would have to take that down and spike him to death with it. Like a mace. Yeah. All right. Or the other thing you could do is take a roll of, or not a roll, a tube of toothpaste mm-hmm. and judo chop it like Austin Powers. There you and go. And blind your attacker. Or you could do like monkeys and just throw feces at them. <laughs> yeah, you could. <laughs> we were talking about navigating Japanese castles. Okay. So blind spots and holes in walls provided constant surveillance of these labyrinthine paths, as exemplified in Himeji Castle. Nijo Castle in Kyoto is constructed with long nightingale floors, which rested on metal hinges specifically designed to squeak loudly when walked over. And this is something that I've read about before, too. And if you're somebody out there who 
lives in a house and your significant other complains about squeaky floors and wants you to spend a bunch of money to fix them, <laughs> you can just point out that this is an ancient Japanese alarm system. Right. You have nightingale floors. I have anti-ninja flooring. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, gr grounds covered with gravel also provided early notice of unwanted intruders and segregated buildings allowed fires to be better contained. So do we want to get into training now? All right, let's talk about the training. The skills required of the ninja have come to be known in modern times as ninjutsu, but it is unlikely they were previously named under a single discipline, but rather distributed among a variety of espionage and survival skills. Some view ninjutsu as evidence that ninja were not simple mercenaries because texts contained not only information on combat training, but also information about daily needs, which even included mining techniques. The guidance provided for daily work also included elements that enabled the ninja to understand the martial qualities of even the most menial task. Just think uh, painting the fence and wax on, wax off. These factors show how the ninjutsu established among the ninja class the fundamental principle of adaptation. The first specialized training began in the mid-15th century when certain samurai families started to focus on covert warfare, including espionage and assassination. Like the samurai, ninja were born into the profession, where traditions were kept in and passed down through the family. According to Turnbull, who we referenced earlier, the ninja were trained from childhood, as was also common in samurai families. Outside the expected martial art disciplines, a youth studied survival and scouting techniques as well as information regarding poisons and explosives. Physical training was also important, which involved long-distance runs, climbing, stealth methods of walking and swimming. A certain degree of knowledge regarding common professions was also required if one was expected to take their form in disguise. Some evidence of medical training can be derived from one account, where an Iga ninja provided first aid to Li Noamasa, who was injured by gunfire in the Battle of Sakigihara. Here, the ninja reportedly gave Noamasa a black medicine, meant to stop bleeding. With the fall of the Iga and Koga clans, daimyos could no longer recruit professional ninja and were forced to train their own shinobi. The shinobi was considered a real profession, as demonstrated in the Bakufu 1649 Law on Military Service, which declared that only lords with an income of over 10,000 koku were allowed to retain shinobi. In the two centuries that followed, several ninjutsu manuals were written by descendants of Hattori Hanzo, as well as members of the Fujibayashi clan, an offshoot of the Hattori. Modern schools that claimed to train ninjutsu arose from the 1970s, including that of Masaki Hatsumi, Stephen K. Hayes, and Jinichi Kawakami. And you may, if you're a little older, if you're a child of the 80s, you may recognize Masaki Hatsumi was in a bunch of ninja movies, all terrible. And Stephen K. Hayes had Ninja Magazine, where he talked about all these ninja skills that he could train. But... The lineage and authenticity of these schools are a matter of controversy, to say the least. As far as tactics go, the ninja didn't always work alone. Teamwork techniques exist. For example, in order to scale a wall, a group of ninja may carry each other on their backs or provide a human platform to assist an individual in reaching greater heights. 
The Mikawago Fidoki gives an account where a coordinated team of attackers used passwords to communicate. The account also gives a case of deception, where the attackers dressed in the same clothes as the defenders, causing a lot of confusion. When a retreat was needed during the siege of Osaka, ninja were commanded to fire upon friendly troops from behind, causing the troops to charge backwards in order to attack a perceived enemy. This tactic was used again later as a method of crowd dispersal. Most ninjutsu techniques recorded in scrolls and manuals revolve around ways to avoid detection and methods of escape. These techniques were loosely grouped under corresponding natural elements. Some examples. Hitsuki, the practice of distracting guards by starting a fire away from the ninja's planned point of entry, falls under fire techniques. Tanuki Gakuri, the practice of climbing a tree and camouflaging oneself within the foliage, falls under wood techniques. Ukigusa Gakuri, the practice of throwing duckweed over water in order to conceal underwater movement, falls under water techniques. Azura Gakuri, the practice of curling into a ball and remaining motionless in order to appear like a stone, falls under earth techniques. You may have an image in mind of a ninja dressed in black, just the eyes showing, but they really used disguises more than a, an outfit like that. The use of disguises is common and well documented. Disguises came in the form of priests, entertainers, fortune tellers, merchants, ronin, and monks. In early writing states, shinobi binomi were people used in secret ways, and their duties were to go into the mountains and disguise themselves as firewood gatherers to discover and acquire the news about an enemy's territory. They were particularly expert at traveling in disguise. A mountain aesthetic attire helped with travel as they were common and could travel freely between political boundaries. The loose robes of Buddhist priests also allowed concealed weapons, such as the tanto, which, if you're not familiar with, is kind of a square-end blade made for piercing armor. Minstrel outfits could have allowed the ninja to spy in enemy buildings without rousing suspicion. Disguises such as a medicant monk known for playing the guitar were also effective, as the large basket hats traditionally worn by them concealed the head completely. What kind of equipment did they work with? Ninja utilized a large variety of tools and weaponry, some of which were commonly known but others were more specialized. Most were tools used in the infiltration of castles. A wide range of specialized equipment is described and illustrated in the 17th century Benson Shukai, including climbing equipment, extending spears, rocket-propelled arrows, and small collapsible boats. All of those sound dope. I would buy all of that stuff right now. <laughs> no doubt. So they used, you know, shuriken, which were the throwing stars, uh, allegedly. Mm -hmm. I don't, you know, to be honest with you, I don't really think those would be very effective. I mean... I don't either. I mean, the best you can do with them is, like, maybe stick them into some plywood or something. Right. But they only go in by, like, a few millimeters. I mean, I know if you hit flesh, mm -hmm. it's different than hitting wood, but it's not... It's not like a sword or like a blade that you hold in your hand or, or even a throwing knife. Right, or, or like a saw blade. You know, they're depicted yeah. sometimes as chopping people's hands off and stuff like that. And I, I think it would be definitely a deterrent, 
you know, you're not going to charge somebody probably that has a hundred things to throw at you. But especially considering that people often wore like chainmail under their garb, I don't think it would be particularly effective. One thing that yeah. I really thought would be effective, they're called caltrops. Have you ever heard of that? Yeah, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, so they're basically like sharpened jacks, if you can think of that. And when people were chasing them, they would just throw them down on the trail behind them. And, you know, they would go through what at the time people were probably wearing were some sort of, you know, sandals. Some of these caltrips, maybe two inches tall, would go pretty deep. And mm. they, they're not going to kill them, but they're going to definitely slow them down. So, right. Even if all they did was stick in the bottom of your boot, it's going to make it hard to run. <laughs> yeah. The image of the ninja costume being black is strong, so I think we're getting into what I was talking about earlier. Yeah. However, in reality, ninjas wore navy blue dyed farmer's working clothes, which were also believed to repel vipers. While the image of the ninja clad in black garb is prevalent in popular media, there is no written evidence for such attire. Instead, it was much more common for the ninja to be disguised as civilians. The popular notion of black clothing is likely rooted in artistic convention. Early drawings of ninja showed them dressed in black in order to portray a sense of invisibility. This convention was an idea borrowed from the puppet handlers of Bunraku Theater, who dressed in total black to simulate props moving independently of their controls. Despite the lack of hard evidence, it has been put forward that black robes, perhaps slightly tainted with red to hide bloodstains, was indeed the sensible garment of choice for infiltration. Clothing used was like that of the samurai, but loose garments, such as leggings, were tucked into trousers or secured with belts. The tenugui, a piece of cloth also used in martial arts, has many functions. It could be used to cover the face, form a belt, or assist in climbing. The history of armor specifically made for ninja cannot be ascertained. While pieces of light armor purportedly worn by ninja exist and date to the right time, there is no hard evidence of their use in ninja operations. Depictions of famous persons later deemed ninja often show them in samurai armor. There were lightweight, concealable types of armor made with chain armor and small armor plates that could have been worn by ninja, including jackets made with armor hidden between layers of cloth. Shin and arm guards, along with metal reinforced hoods, are also speculated to make up the ninja's armor. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, that is cool. What about tools? Tools used for infiltration and espionage are some of the most abundant artifacts related to the ninja. Ropes and grappling hooks were common and were tied to the belt. A collapsible ladder is illustrated in the Bansenshikai, featuring spikes at both ends to anchor the ladder. Spiked or hood climbing gear worn on the hands and feet also doubled as weapons. We see in Wolverine these long blades that, you know, pop out of his fists, but that was actually a weapon that was supposed to be used by the ninja. Obviously, it didn't come out of their skin, but it was just a handheld thing. They also had, I believe they were called Shoku and Ashika which were spikes that they wore on their like their palms of their hands and the soles of their feet and that was a climbing tool and you know an effective weapon i mean it's nice to have you know metal spikes on your hand if you're going to be in a fist fight with somebody the kunai was a heavy pointed tool possibly derived from the japanese masonry trowel 
which it closely resembles. And that may have been used in the ass assination of the guy we talked about ass, in the lavatory. That was truly an Tension. Yeah, that was truly an assassination. <laughs> <laughs> Although it is often portrayed in popular culture as a weapon, the kunai was primarily used for gouging holes in walls. Knives and small saws were also used to create holes in buildings where they served as a foothold or a passage of entry. So they could kind of basically hammer these things into the walls which I'm assuming were either wood or some sort of you know concrete and basically make their own ladder similar to what mm. rock climbers do yeah a portable listening device was used to eavesdrop on conversations and detect sounds so I'm thinking cup on the wall I don't know what kind of portable listening device they would have had back then tin cans of the string yep throw it up over the wall and you can hear everything they just got one of those annoying birds that repeat stuff yes to go over there and sit for a while and then come back and just repeat shit back that would be awesome that would be really cool if they if somebody used a parrot to spy yeah i did hear a story about a drug dealer i believe it was in brazil that had a parrot that just sat on his open window in, in his apartment building and would yell every time he saw police. So that was kind of cool. <laughs> I digress. The Mizuguma was a set of wooden shoes supposedly allowing the ninja to walk on water. They were meant to work by distributing the wearer's weight over the shoe's wide bottom surface. The word Mizugumo is derived from the native name for the Japanese water spider. But... They showed these on Mythbusters, and it was actually quite hilarious. It's, it would take someone a lifetime of doing this every day to be able to... I mean, picture your, your feet have these, like, two-foot by three-foot wooden skis or, or made out of reeds or whatever they were made out of and trying to walk across mm -hmm. water with that. I mean, it would be much easier just to swim. I mean, it's not like they had yeah. iPhones they needed to worry about. I mean, even if you could get your balance, like, it'd be so... How would you get traction? Right. Like, the best you would do is, like, just toddle back and forth and not really move much. Yeah, and if there was any kind of current, you would be drug away. It'd take you 20 minutes to cross a 15-foot stream. And then you'd be mm -hmm. swept... It just... It, it was made up, basically. I think that the ninja may have started some of these rumors about themselves you know hey the, you know i heard the ninjas can walk on water hey i heard ninjas are all handsome dudes right so the ukidari a similar footwear for walking on water also existed in the form of a flat round bucket but was probably quite unstable Inflatable skins and breathing tubes allowed the ninja to stay underwater for longer periods of time, which, you know, has been kind of outlined through history that, you know, people would use, uh, you know, like intestines and stuff like that to store water or store air. Yeah. Despite the large array of tools available to the ninja, the Banson Shukai warns one not to be overburdened with equipment, stating... A successful ninja is one who uses but one tool for multiple tasks. We'll talk about ninja weaponry after a quick break.
Welcome back, Crypt Keepers. Ryan, tell us about ninja weapons. Although shorter swords and daggers were used, the katana was probably the ninja's weapon of choice and was sometimes carried on the back. The katana had several uses beyond normal combat. In dark places, the scabbard could be extended out of the sword and used as a long probing device. The sword could also be laid against the wall where the ninja could use the sword guard to gain a higher foothold. The katana could even be used as a device to stun enemies before attacking them by putting a combination of red pepper, dirt, or dust and iron filings into the area near the top of the scabbard, so that as the sword was drawn, the concoction would fly into the enemy's eyes, stunning him until a lethal blow could be made. While straight swords were used before the invention of the katana, the straight ninjato has no historical precedent and is likely a modern invention. An array of darts, spikes, knives, and sharp star-shaped discs were collectively known as shuriken. While not exclusive to the ninja, they were an important part of the arsenal where they could be thrown in any direction. Bows were used for sharpshooting and some ninja's bows were intentionally made smaller than the traditional longbow. The chain and sickle were also used by the ninja. This weapon consisted of a weight on one end of a chain and a sickle on the other. The weight was swung to injure or disable an opponent, and the sickle was used to kill at close range. Explosives introduced from China were known in Japan by the time of the Mongol invasions in the 13th century. Later explosives such as handheld bombs and grenades were adopted by the ninja. Soft case bombs were designed to release smoke or poison gas along with fragmentation explosives packed with iron or ceramic shrapnel. Along with common weapons, a large assortment of miscellaneous arms were associated with the ninja. Some examples include poison, caltrops as we mentioned before, cane swords, landmines, blowguns, poison darts, acid-spurting tubes, and firearms. The hoppo, a small eggshell filled with blinding powder, was also used to facilitate escapes. So they had a lot to pick from. They would need a big utility belt to carry all that stuff. Yeah, more like a uh, some rolling luggage or something, but... yeah. But they also were supposed to have some legendary abilities, right? Superhuman or supernatural powers were often associated with the ninja. Some legends include flight, invisibility, shape-shifting, the ability to split into multiple bodies, which is pretty awesome, the summoning of animals, and control over the five classical elements. These fabulous notions have stemmed from popular imagination regarding the ninja's mysterious status as well as romantic ideas found in later Japanese art of the Edo period. Magical powers were sometimes rooted in the ninja's own efforts to disseminate fanciful information. I knew it. For example, Nakagawa Shoshunjin, the 17th century founder of Nakagawa Ryu, claimed in his own writings that he had the ability to transform into birds and animals. Perceived control over the elements may be grounded in real tactics which were categorized by association with forces of nature. For example, the practice of starting fires in order to cover a ninja's trail falls under fire techniques. Shocker. The ninja's adaptation of kites in espionage and warfare is another subject of legends. Accounts exist of ninja being lifted into the air by kites where they flew over hostile terrain and descended into or dropped bombs on enemy territory. Kites were indeed used in Japanese warfare, but mostly for the purpose of sending messages and relaying signals. Which makes sense, you know, you don't have to run something up a flagpole if you can put a sign on a kite and put it 100 feet in the air. Mm -hmm. I guess it was windy back then. 
Turnbull suggests that kites lifting a man into midair might have been technically feasible, but states that the use of kites to form a human hang glider falls squarely in the realm of fantasy. What about the Kujikiri? Kujikiri is an esoteric practice which, when performed with an array of hand seals, or kujiin, was meant to allow the ninja to enact superhuman feats. Just to be clear, when they say hand seals, they're basically talking about formations with your hands, like in fists. Think of, you know, there's the steeple, you open the roof, and there's all the people. It's different, like, hand gestures like that that they make with their hands, and they they recite these uh, sort of their own Bushido. So go ahead, sorry. Yeah, or like, um, <clears throat> maybe like signs from The Witcher. Haven't seen it, but maybe Bloods and Crypt. Well, I'm thinking more. <laughs> I'm thinking more of the game, but there, it's these like magic things that your character can do, where he makes these hand gestures and it casts like a very simple spell. You know, maybe it's made meant to make like an animal docile or yeah. to like push somebody back, just like a almost like a telekinetic or you know just just real simple manipulations. Yeah, either that or when crocodile dundee used his thumb and pinky twist to like get the bull out of the road or whatever do you remember that so (laughs) and and i think the purpose of making the hand symbols with the putting forth the intention thought whatever is to connect the mind and the body Mm -hmm. so the kuji or nine characters is a concept originating from taoism where it was a string of nine words used in charms and incantations. In China, this tradition mixed with Buddhist beliefs, assigning each of the nine words to a Buddhist deity. The Kuji may have arrived in Japan via Buddhism, where it flourished within Shugendo. Here, too, each word in the Kuji was associated with Buddhist deities, animals from Taoist mythology, and later Shinto kami. The mudra, a series of hand symbols representing different Buddhas, was applied to the Kuji by Buddhists, possibly through the esoteric Mikyo teachings. The Yamabushi style of self-discipline of Shugendo adopted this practice using hand gestures in spiritual healing and exorcism rituals. Later, the use of Kuji passed into certain martial arts and ninjutsu schools where it was said to have many purposes. The application of Kuji to produce a desired effect was called cutting the Kuji. Intended effects range from physical and mental concentration to more incredible claims about rendering an opponent immobile or even casting of magical spells. These legends were captured in popular culture, which interpreted the Kujikiri as a precursor to magical arts. So this probably leads into pop culture pretty well, since this is more stuff that you see in a lot of anime and comic books where like a technique will be more like a spell. Yeah. I never really got into Naruto. There was a show called Naruto that I knew people who watched. I never watched it. But you wore the metal headbands. <laughs> I heard people talking about it, and they would talk about like, oh, and then so-and-so did this technique where he turns into a tree. And it's like, I don't understand the rules of this world. <laughs> in pop culture, the image of the ninja entered pop culture in the Edo period when folk tales and plays about the ninja were conceived. Stories about the ninja are usually based on historical figures. For instance, many similar tales exist about a lord challenging a ninja to prove his worth, usually by stealing his pillow or a weapon while he slept. 
Novels were written about the ninja, some of which were also made into kabuki plays. Fictional figures such as Saratobi Sasuki would eventually make their way into comics and television where they've come to enjoy a cult hero status outside their original mediums. Ninja appear in many forms of Japanese and Western pop media, including books, television, animation, movies, video games, anime, manga, and American comic books like the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. From ancient Japan to the modern world media, popular depictions range from the realistic to the fantastically exaggerated, both fundamentally and aesthetically. So we talked about crappy early ninja movies. Ninja Assassin looks good. I haven't seen it, but the action is well done. You know, the action scenes. I know that. There's a lot of parkour that ninjas do in movies. You know, we see Jackie Chan do that, and, you know, they were thought to be able to run up walls, climb trees, you know, all that sort of stuff. But the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles are kind of jokey, right? I mean, obviously it's not real. But the last game that I remember playing was Tenchu Stealth Assassins. Now I played Ninja Gaiden or Ninja Gaiden, however you want to say it. Played Gaiden is how my friend said it. Yeah, I know. I like Gaiden better though. <laughs> um played a little Shinobi, but those were basically like, you know, you were watching in third person from the side from a distance. But Tenchu Stealth Assassins, you didn't have at least the way I played, you didn't have a first person point of view, but your view was from a few feet behind and a few feet above. And it really, I think, kind of captured what being like a solo ninja would be like. A lot of sneaking around, everything was dark, and it was not as exciting as you might think. It took a lot of time. You know, you had to creep and crawl to get up to a building where no one could see you and and stuff like that. But it was a great game. Do you have a favorite uh, ninja video game? Probably Shinobi, but not the NES one. There was one Mm -hmm. on PS2 that was... um, I never beat it, I don't think. Now I'm thinking about it. That's funny, because I picture you beating it. (laughs) Alright, I don't want to know why you're picturing it, but... The the main guy's name is Hatsuma, and it's like a very... It's a very fantastical, exaggerated story, like we were talking about. You know, it's either end, so mine is the more fantastical one. Mm Where, like, the sword is alive, basically. That's cool. And it it requires you to kill, essentially. Like, if you don't kill, it will kill you. Like, it'll begin to, like, drain your life force or, like, try to take your soul or something like that, so... It's almost like a haunted sword. Yeah, like, the more you kill, the more powerful it is. But if you don't kill, it starts hurting you. And there's, like, all these mystical, sort of magical enemies that you have to fight. But it takes place in, like, modern-day Japan. That's interesting. It was a really fun game. It was really difficult. Mm-hmm. Now I kind of want to play it again, or I want like a remaster for a modern system. Yeah. <laughs> It'd probably be pretty tough to go back to a PS2. Do you have any final thoughts on the Ninja? Real? Fake? I think they're probably real. I think it's just... Well, I mean, I think they're definitely real. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I guess like how well they were kept as a secret adds to like their mystery and what we do and don't know about them like we know about this variety of weapons but we don't know for sure what they really use like every time or how effective they could be or we don't know what kind of armor they would have worn i think it's really i like that there's still a lot of mystery about it yeah 
Well, I think that when I picture like a an invasion of these ninja, I picture the SWAT teams that we have, and I feel like a lot of their tactics are kind of based on what we've talked about tonight. You know, they they go for like stealth. confusion and yeah, yeah, they go for stealth when they can. I mean, I'm sure they would much rather, you know, secretly enter a building. It's it's a little different when you have like a hostage situation at a house or something like that. But, you know, they overwhelm you. They throw in the smoke grenades and the flashbangs and repel through windows and stuff like that. So I, I feel like a lot of what they do is kind of either based on or similar to what we see in the Edo period in Japan. But that's all I've got. You got anything else? No. Well, that's all we've got for you on the history of the legendary ninja. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already and share, share, share. Check out the Parabox link in the show notes and send us case suggestions at crypticpodcast at gmail.com. Good evening, Crypt Keepers. 